Welcome to tonight's edition of Resistance TV. We're discussing whether Britain should become a republic this evening. The decision to bestow a knighthood on Tony Blair is just one aspect of a system that seems outdated in the 21st century. Just over 30 years ago, Tony Benn proposed the Commonwealth of Britain bill. This was actually seconded by Jeremy Corbyn. The provisions of the bill would have abolished the monarchy, disestablished the Church of England, empowered MPs and peers to appoint the head of state, replaced the Privy Council with an open and accountable body, abolished the House of Lords, made county court judges and magistrates subject to an election process, ended British jurisdiction in the north of Ireland, reformed the judiciary and created a national legal service, reduced the voting age to 16, introduced a codified constitution and required MPs to swear an oath to the constitution, not to the Crown. Now, joining us to discuss these issues tonight is Steve Freeman. He's a member of the University of College Union, a member of the Labour Left Alliance, and he's also the convener for the LLA's Republican Labour Working Group. So let's start with that uh, Tony Blair knighthood, uh, if we can, Steve. Was it the Queen's decision alone to bestow a knighthood on? Well, not all knighthoods are, but the, the, the Garter Knights, uh, the Garter Knights, which goes back to, I think, Edward III in the 13, 1348, set up a, a special order of knights, uh, 24 knights, as it were. They, they are appointed by the Queen. Now, they will include special, I mean, they, they, I think they appointed Camilla to be with the, the female equivalent of, of the knights. But they also, uh, it's become the tradition to appoint, I think, former prime ministers. And I did see it mentioned that uh, Gordon Brown and uh, David Cameron and um, Theresa May uh, are all waiting in their queue. They, they, it was a bit of a bed blocker with Tony Blair. They never got around to giving him this, and now they did. So the, the way's open for them to come in and get there. So. In some ways, I think it's like the elite, really. It's the closest elite because all these people have worked so closely with the Queen. They know all the secrets and how it all works. And that puts them in a very special position within the ruling part of our society. So, you know, yeah. it's, it's not just an honour. I think it's come from knowledge. It's come from those working relationships as well. So it's not just a, not just a patronage thing. I think it, yeah. it's it. But it's the Queen that... The Queen, obviously there's some tradition in who she appoints, but it, it is, she appoints that. It's not down to Boris Johnson, uh, unlike other knighthoods, I think, where, where the Prime Minister probably has some say. I mean, I don't know. Yeah, it's, it's interesting because uh, some, some of the reaction when I put out the advertising blurb on my social media platforms for tonight's discussion and made the point in that about the Queen bestowing the knighthood on... Uh, Tony Blair. Some people responded saying, well, it wasn't her decision. Uh, she was acting on advice. But my understanding was, which seems to be confirmed by what you just said, is that this particular type of knighthood is the Queen's decision and the Queen's decision alone. I mean, we, we've always got to remember that the Queen, the, the official way in which the system works is that the Queen is not, does have no politics at all. But we, that, we don't know that because we're not in these uh, private conversations. If she made political statements, which she does occasionally, she, it, would, it would call into question the very existence of the monarchy. So a very strict protocol, as it were, to keep the monarchy is that the monarchy is not political. But we don't necessarily have to believe that. And we know in all sorts of ways in which the, the Queen has influence through the Queen's consent on, on legislation and the chance to see legislation. She's got such a privileged position within the system. It would be unbelievable that a millionaire, somebody very rich, wouldn't have some saying what's going on and we know from yeah, articles in the guardian that indeed she does have. so i think we should be wary of saying that all the queen just exists to prove that we're a democracy by proving that she has absolutely no power whatsoever and she just is like boris johnson's glove puppet she just does what he says obviously mm. if it comes to a crisis she might have to intervene she wouldn't be able to do that very often and and, and survive but so they would never do that if, unless it was in a really tricky situation where she had to intervene and do something quite decisive so you know that that's the that's yeah the way it is. i mean just in terms of getting into the meat of the conversation that this evening just evening, you've been a republican for most of your life i think and um i just want to maybe if you could maybe set out you know why you think britain should become a, a, a republic i mean not just in relation to the issue about 
they're still having uh, items on uh, people, which I think many people like Tony Blair, which many people don't think uh, merits any form of uh, uh, honour. Actually, I think a lot of people think he should be behind bars as a walking Um But obviously, you know, we had Tony Benn's bill, uh, Commonwealth of Britain bill, which was much more wide-ranging than simply, you know, abolishing the monarchy. There were a lot of more kind of, you know, fundamental issues in relation uh, to this whole question. So, obviously, I've mapped out in very summary uh, version my opening that remarks. But what do you think maybe just a, a, a little bit of uh, a concept to move to my sort of overarching yeah. sort of summary of what that was all about? Okay. I, mean, I make just one other point now in relation to... to uh, Tony Blair's knighthood. I think that the people who seem strongly motivated by this are particularly concerned because of his record with the Iraq and Afghan Afghan wars. That's the thing that motivates people. The actual petition calls upon the prime prime minister to call upon the Queen to to rescind this. <laughs> you could imagine anything more more bizarre than that. But that's what the petition does. It's got a million uh, a million supporters. But I think we as socialists should draw attention to the fact we're not looking for the crown to, to do this. But but what we should highlight is the fact that, that because of the Iraq war, Tony Blair's position is the very opposite of Julian Assange. So on one yeah. hand, we've got Tony Blair being given his highest award. And we've got, on the other hand, the person who perhaps ought to be our hero, who's, who's exposed of what of the crimes that have gone on, is now languishing in terrible conditions in jail. And I think that these are moments when those things, why, if a million people can sign a petition against his knighthood, can a million people sign a petition demanding Julian Assange's release? And I think that's what we as socialists should be saying in this, in this, uh, in this situation. We should link those questions together. Yeah, but, 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 but Tony Benn, I mean, come back to just to, to the point that you made, and I'm just coming in here, that in his bill, um, and you, you, I think you probably mentioned, but he has a clause 44 in his bill, which says that there should be no personal title or rank or hereditary, whether hereditary or not, should be recognised by law. And that, so, so uh, for, for Republicans, it's not that just Tony Benn were worried about, it's that the whole system of honours that we are, are opposing, not just the gift of this one particular example, which, which has its own particular... Uh, uh, circumstances and as you say quite rightly this is what a lot of people don't understand which if you read Tony Benn's book he's got an excellent book I think for people that he wrote with uh, Andrew well, it's up here called Common Sense Tony you may or may not have seen that but that's a very good book it's, it, it sets out his case and the, the point to make is and people think that Republican is about just uh, abolishing the Queen you know and we'll just carry everything else will carry on the same what, what Ben's bill demonstrates to us that it, it's a program, it's a whole series of democratic uh, reforms. It's not a single-issue campaign, isn't republicanism. It's about all the way in which our system of government functions. It's a big, it's a big issue. It's not, a, it's not one person or how would we be without, without the Queen. A lot of left republicanism seems to mix itself up with what you might call anti-monarchism, confuse the two. They're not the same thing. Getting rid of the Queen is not really what Republicans are about. I mean, obviously, we're not, we're not we're keeping, the, keeping the monarchy, but the, really yeah. the Republican argument, the Republican argument is essentially an argument about democracy, and that's how we have to pitch it. We have to take the democratic argument. So if I could then come on to, to perhaps to what... Um, what you just asked me and make a few comments about that because the question that I was going to address or I'm addressing was it says why Britain should become a republic and I think and so I thought I'd try to get the shortest answer for that and then elaborate on it a little bit so I'll give a two-point answer to the question why okay why so the first one is because of the democratic deficit that always needs to be addressed. So I put democratic deficit. I'm going to say what I think that means because that, that in itself could be a contested idea. And then the second one is that we're living through a deep crisis of our democracy, um, which, of course, our democracy in the UK takes the form of a constitutional monarchy in which sovereignty is based on, or authority, sovereignty or authority, if you like, is based on this rather strange term, the crown in parliament. 
which seems to suggest that authority is divided between the Crown and Parliament, as if the Queen doesn't really do much in all of that, it's mainly Parliament. But the Crown, of course, is not the Queen. The Crown is all those institutions of state. It's the whole system of government uh, in Whitehall who can, as it were, influence Parliament. And if you had to say, where was the balance of power between the Crown and Parliament? We see every day that the Crown controls the whole. I mean, you'll know this far better than I will, Chris, that the Crown controls the agenda, it controls really, and more or less through the whips and all the rest of it controls what that goes on in the, in the Palace of Westminster. So the real point is that we're in this crisis of democracy. So, um, and I, um, so I want to just elaborate on those on those couple of, on those two points. Let's just take the uh, democratic deficit. I think that's okay. Uh, this is a term that people people are very familiar with. It's been widely used, and back in the eighties, it was used by Charter Eighty Eight that had a campaign for democracy. I don't think Chris, you remember that. I do. They use the term the democratic deficit, but it's often presented as if these are sort of things we forgot to do, the sort of outstanding things we never did. We sort of forgot, you know, some sort of collective amnesia, like we like we, we forgot to abolish the House of Lords, you know, so perhaps we should just fit, fit that out. Um, but perhaps we didn't bother to, uh, perhaps we didn't bother to have elections for the head of state. So they're just sort of little bits of leftover from the past, just, you know, which we don't need to bother with. And I think that's to really misunderstand what the democratic deficit is. I, I would define it as all those things that are designed to exclude working class people from having the right to decide and the right to control their lives. So it's not an accident, therefore, it's a deliberate policy. In other words, they, those in power will try to maintain this democratic deficit and they'll only concede a little bit with, with a struggle. Uh, uh, those in power. And I, I would say that, um, so we have a democratic deficit in the Labour Party that you will be more than more than well aware of. We have a democratic deficit in our trade unions, we have them in our workplaces, we have them in our local communities. And of course, last but not least, in our forms of national government, in our constitution. So it's kind of all there in multiple ways, more than I can think about how that how that comes in. And, and, and given that we're a union state in the United Kingdom, there's also a democratic deficit in Northern Ireland, there's one in Scotland, there's one in Wales, and last but not least, one in England, which I, I will come on to say a little bit more about in a minute. So I think that, you know, you can certainly see struggles over democracy in Northern Ireland, and you can see them in Scotland, and you can see them in Wales. It's a bit more difficult to see them in, in England. And, and that's, a, that's a point in itself. So. I think that republicanism, properly understood, um, is about a long historical struggle going over days or de decades or even centuries to kind of, as it were, to end the democratic deficit. And that's what I think republicanism is essentially about. It's not primarily about ending hereditary institutions like the monarchy or the laws, although it is that. It's more to do with the power that we've got in our society is massively bureaucratic. It's the unelected and the unaccountable. Uh, the crown, therefore, is not simply to be equated with the monarch. It's almost like a huge co corporate body that employs millions of workers, the civil service, uh, and that power it brings in to dominate our society. So if you like, in that context, the queen, this is a kind of corporate entity, not an individual thing. The queen is a bit like the chair of the board and Boris Johnson's like the chief executive who manages it on a day-to-day -day basis. There is an interesting report, You again, Chris, you're probably aware of this, the, about the Hillsborough football tragedy, the one in 2017, especially if you're a football fan, you'll be aware of this as well. Um, and, the, and the title of it, I think, gets to it. It, it's, it calls it, the, the title of this report is The Patronising Disposition of Unaccountable Power. And he's, they're talking about what they discovered through the struggle for the Hillsborough, the victims of the Hillsborough tragedy. And what they discovered in trying to take 30 years to carry on this struggle, to try to get to the truth of what was going on, that, that, that power was patronizingly disposed and unaccountable, and they were struggling to gain accountability for what, what, what actually took place. 
And I think that is not about just about the Queen, but it's about how the whole how the whole system how the whole system operates. Um, so let me just take the second form from that. I wanted to just then talk a little bit about the crisis of democracy, because I think this is a second strand of the story. Now, I think that um, a crisis of democracy means that the old system can't sustain itself anymore. It's come to a point where people have become so disillusioned in it that the system becomes sort of unstable. And I think that's what's been happening since the 2008 financial crisis, the banking crisis, and since the harsh austerity politics that's been carried, carried out since then, that people in this country have become more and more disillusioned with the democracy we have and don't think it can solve their problems. Now, one aspect, there are many aspects of that. One of those aspects was uh, the 2014 Scottish referendum. If you think 45% of Scottish people are voting to leave, saying goodbye, we want to go. That's not 50%, obviously. But hey, 45% is like massive, isn't it? That's a real vote of no confidence in what they call the Westminster system. And then, of course, if you even the, the, the election of Jeremy Corbyn, that's really people in the Labour Party. Then we've had enough of the way this has been going. They've turned to something sort of a bit left field, something you would never have expected to happen, to elect Jeremy Corbyn, a completely sort of fringe member of the Labour Party, and all of a sudden becomes a leader. And that's a sign of the deep dissatisfaction with austerity and the desire to do something else, which poses, as you did, Chris, yourself, the, the crisis of democracy in the Labour Party. And I really remember you going around the country with the democracy roadshow, I think it was called. So that posed a crisis of democracy in the Labour Party. And then, of course, the European Union referendum in 2016. And again, in England, the vote was to leave the European Union. But the, the winning arguments in England, I still think, as well, there was a racist element to that. But the winning argument was, let's take back control. Now, I'm not going to say that we did take back control, but it was a popular argument. People were persuaded, but generally by the right wing, that we didn't, we couldn't control our own democracy now because of the European Union. And therefore, if we left the European Union, we could sort of get our democracy back. Now, get it back is take take back control. We never had it in the first place, so you know, we, let's not run with that one. But the point was that desire for more democracy, and then. The Tories have been using these sort of democratic slogans like get Brexit done, you voted for it, we're going to get it done. They took the democratic message more powerfully than the Labour Party's confused message at, um, at the last election. Now, I had um, was a little quote, and I think it gets to me, one from, from Gordon Brown. I'll give you one quote, which I think gets to the idea that our democracy is in a real crisis and is sort of dying. Um, there's one here from a report which apparently was commissioned for the leader of the opposition's office by a guy called Sean Griffin. And this report says there's an ex existential crisis facing the British state. It's plagued, it says it's plagued by huge economic and political imbalances and inordinate centralisation of power and wealth, vast regional inequalities across the UK, an empty commitment to devolution. The old constitution, it says, is creaking under the weight of complete competing nationalisms, identity politics, and the disconnect between ordinary people and the British political and economic elite, elite centred on Westminster and the City of London. And I think that uh, message is really what I'm talking about. That is a message that we need to get. The system is in a kind of a kind of zombified democracy. It might still look like it, but. It isn't really there anymore. And the big danger of this, uh, the big danger that we face is two, and we can see that one path out of this crisis of democracy is towards authoritarianism. If democracy is not working, why not somebody like Mussolini who could come along and make everything work again? Why not have an authoritarian figure? Why not, or, or even the direction towards fascism if, this, if the system is, is not working? Or the other side of that, because there's always two ways out of this, the other side is that we actually need a new democracy. We actually need a new constitutional settlement uh, that can address all, all these problems. 
and that then take that then as it were takes us back to where what Tony Benn was um, talking about in uh, in. 1991-1992-1996。Now you you read out Chris. I I did my notes was going to read out some of those points, but you've already done that. So that's saving a bit of time. Thank you very much. But those points show that it's a full Republican and Democratic program. And I, I want to take one point out of there and just highlight this point. I
not by it being imposed upon Scotland and Wales and Ireland by England, but rather all the, all these people coming to establish their own sovereignty, their own democracy, a kind of democracy that comes from the citizens, from below, that is grassroots-based democracy, um, which goes in parallel with workplace democracy, goes in par parallel with making our trade unions more democratic, and of course, last but not least, a democratic Labour Party, which seems highly unlikely, but would have been a good idea uh, if, if, it, if, it, uh, if it wasn't. And, it, and, it, and I'll end on this point. It's worth remembering that the term Commonwealth, which Ben uses, actually does go back to 1649. It does go back. And, and Ben was a regular attender at the, um, at the May Festival in Burford in Oxfordshire, where the levellers had their last stand. And um, England became a Commonwealth in January 1649. It was the promise of a better society. But as we know, the counter-revolution came in. The levellers were all arrested. Uh, and locked up. And uh, less well known is that in May 1649, 800 women dressed in green dresses, which was the leveller colour, demonstrated outside the House of Commons for the release of the levellers. Um, and of course, the diggers were also active. They were trying to make this democratic. The levellers were trying to make the republic more democratic, and the diggers were trying to make it a social republic, i.e. what they want to do is take over the land to be able to feed the people, they they were a movement to 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 get to get get control of the land so that people could feed themselves. They were also um, defeated, and I think that's where we we go back to. I think we go back to saying we obviously this is the twenty first century. It's not it's not seventeenth century, but nevertheless, there's a great inspiration from our fantastic democratic republican social traditions that Tony Benn fully understood when he called his bill the Commonwealth Bill. And I think that we therefore should should take that up. Um, yeah. And I think I think that would be probably a good good place to to stop. At this no, well, thanks. That was really fascinating. Uh, a really useful uh, uh, summary, uh, Steve, of, of, the, of the position. And uh, your point, I think, is absolutely well made, in my view, anyway, in relation to the diggers levelers we certainly in my view need a 21st century version of the levelers and the diggers and you know given the number of food banks that are springing up and the, you know access to you know good quality food for, for people is a real issue uh, in the 21st century it's actually stain on what is supposed to be you know a civilized society in the world but i just want to pick up on one or two of the comments before i give your comments before i bring in uh, sean uh, who will just run through some of the comments from our viewers this evening. First off, I just wanted to sort of ask you, which is slightly tangential, but your, but your point about the English seemingly voting in a more right-wing trajectory. But in 2017, there was the biggest increase in vote share for the Labour Party on a, a relatively radical composition. I think it could have been more, more radical than it was. But considering where we've been for the last four decades, it's a better of fresh air. So, just on your point in relation to how things went in 2019, do you think that's a reflection of the opinion of the British people, or is it a failure of the left in this country to put forward a proposition that was sufficiently attractive for people? I think well, my answer to that would have been would have been yes. And just I, just to say as a corrective, I think that that. Brexit was, by and large, was was something taken over by the right and led by the right. And I think the equivalent, Jeremy Corbyn was the left wing equivalent of the same process that's going on. The disillusionment that people felt uh, in in that period manifested itself in Jeremy Corbyn's movement and in the idea that if we left the European Union, we'd get our democracy back and make things better. I think both of those things were different sides. So you're right with so both of those things. Um, why did Jeremy Corbyn... Okay, so there's a lot of reasons. Are you, are you asking me why did Jeremy Corbyn lose in 2019? Well, no, no, there's more points about... Okay, no, was it a failure of the left? I mean, are people yes, moving yes. right, or is it a failure of the left? Yes. Do I actually put forward a proposition which is sufficiently attractive? Is it? Is it? Yes. You know. Yes. Is it? Is it a public that's going right wing, 
or is it the left which has failed them? Okay, I'll go for the latter. I will go for the latter because the the logic of my position would have been that if Jeremy Corbyn, when he came to power, could have taken the Benite route rather than rather than a, a route, the route that he did take, which was essentially saying he was loyal to the constitution, the Crown in Parliament, and he would work within that system. He wouldn't disturb that. He hoped that he could become Her Majesty's Prime Minister and then carry out these reforms. That's the way. That's the way it was going. He he wasn't. He wasn't taking the lessons. I think what Tony Benn did in 1991, he set out a programme that is still our future. Even though it wasn't taken up by the left, he's still pointing out to us, this is the benchmark that we have to achieve. Now, Jeremy Corbyn didn't win the Labour Party leadership on the Benite programme, in this Benite programme, that's true. But he may have had a chance where, had he been... Um, Mobile enough, he could have gone back, especially when they tried to overthrow him a second time, by the way, the second thing, he could have gone back and said, we've got to go further now. We need, we need to be much more democratic. You, you've tried to overthrow me, now I'm going to, put, I'm going to go back now and put a more democratic. And he, he could have put a, I think, he could have put an updated version of the Ben programme that would have been quite appealing to people. And it would have been quite clearly distinct from what Boris Johnson was doing. Because Boris Johnson stole some of, Basically, Boris Johnson stole some of uh, Corbyn's clothes and tied it into Brexit. Mm. And Jer- Jeremy Corbyn, therefore, it, it was difficult because Corbyn was, meanwhile, getting tied up with Starmer, who was... So, really, the programme was a kind of Corbyn-Starmer programme, really, is what he was trying to trying to deal with. So, I think I think there's a seeds of a defeat was that he... And even if he had not won in 2019, but had put forward a Republican Benite-type programme, even if he'd been defeated, he would have changed the consciousness of people in this country about what we need to do. So he could have been defeated and left a very important democratic legacy behind him. Whereas I can't see that he's left that because of the programme that he did stand on, which basically Starmer said, I'll carry it out, but I'm going to make it much more patriotic. Fly I mean, uh, to be honest with you, Steve, my, my view on all that is that it's not obviously Jeremy has to take uh, his share of the blame, but it's not entirely Jeremy's fault. All of the pressure that was being applied in the parliamentary Labour Party was coming from the right wing, and obviously from outside of the, the parliamentary Labour Party too, in the fourth estate, the media, and all the rest of it, and the you know the oligarchs and faceless corporations, etc. I, I must sort of blame the socialist campaign group, and I used to plead with the campaign group. They're not just be cheerleaders for everything that Jeremy mm. and John McDonald were saying, but to actually be pushing them to go further to create the space. And they were just a waste of they were a waste of space, frankly, the socialist campaign group. They were bloody yeah. useless. But the point I was just going to make though, just I was just saying that as an aside, you might want to comment on that in a minute to it. But the question I was going to ask is that you know, you talked about Jeremy coming to the fore and that was a reflection that you know people were fed up, people were fed up inside the Labour Party. But does it also not illustrate that, notwithstanding what happened in 2008, the crisis of capitalism, they are still incredibly powerful and influential and will fight like dogs to ensure that their previous position pertains? Because everything was thrown at Jeremy, wasn't it? Absolutely everything. He got, you know, he got the scientist lobby, obviously, and, you know, he got the military industrial complex, you've got generals saying they wouldn't tolerate a, a Corbyn government if it was a cut defence spending or scrap trident, etc. You know, so there was all the forces of the state were thrown at Jeremy and that Corbyn project and ultimately destroyed it. And now, you know, obviously I think there's mistakes to be made, you know, we should have fought them more more vociferously. I think certainly the socialist campaign that they're a waste of space, but you know, you talked about that crisis. Um, I mean, how optimistic are you that, uh, you know, a sort of a, a radical democratic alternative, a Benite sort of alternative, a Republican Benite democratic alternative has a chance of prevailing? Or is it more like that we're going to go down the authoritarian fascist route, a Mussolini, a 21st century Mussolini type thing? Well, first of all, I just wanted to, before I answer to that, which is a very, very important point, I, I didn't want to get round to thinking I want to blame Jeremy Corbyn for what went wrong. I think that's completely wrong. A lot of people do. I think that's all wrong. It's like 
people have built up to be heroes and then they're knocked down. You know, Jeremy Corbyn was the voice of a movement. The movement just happened to pick him and he just happened to be picked out. He could have picked John McDonnell or he could have been anybody else. So I don't think we need to get into that. You, you could certainly say that if the movement had been Republican, which it wasn't, then they would have been pulling him up and saying, wait a minute, where are you going with this? He would have had the pressure from below on him. And as you say, the 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 campaign group was, you know, I don't obviously don't know how the that, that thing works, but take what you said. That, that, that pressure from work. the campaign doesn't work. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. It doesn't work waste all. of space, mate. Yeah. So, <laughs> so I'm arguing. A lot of people think. A lot of people think, and I'm arguing something different. That somehow we could just the Jeremy Corbyn program was correct. It just went wrong. We should try again. Whereas I'm saying no. The problem is that the Jeremy Corbyn program that he had in 2019 isn't the correct program for the kind of crisis of democracy that we are facing, the dangers that we're facing, and, and to argue that yes, that we're more likely to go down the we are already going down. By the way, the authoritarian oh, yeah. route in terms of what the, what Boris Johnson's doing. You know, that, that's a route that they're going to take us more and more down as we as people resist it. So if I had to guess, are we going to go democratic or authoritarian? I'd probably put my money on going authoritarian. But the mere fact that we can say that also tells us that we must do something about it. We're not just sitting here being victims of it. We have to create that democracy. So we are forced by conditions to take the question of democracy on the left much more seriously. And unfortunately, the left, in, the left especially in England, by the way, because... The left in Scotland has come to recognise they need a new constitution, new system of government in Scotland. The left in England haven't really worked this one out at all yet. We are really lagging, lagging behind. We're reflecting a certain backwardness in England. But the lash of, of what the right is, 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 where the right is going, is if we do not wake ourselves up, if we don't have that message, then we are in trouble, dangerously in trouble. So, so I think that uh what we've got to do on the left and i i think the the all those forces to the left on the left of the labor party which are now a little bit disorientated by the what we're going to do after the corbyn defeat you know we've got to i think just like the crown just like the crown unites the right i think republicanism can unite the left uh, as it mm. happens that the, the, the crown is the crown and the monarchy is to the right what republicanism is to the left yeah but there's just a on huge... that, on that just on the point that you, that you mentioned, uh, Steve, in relation to the Constitution, and uh, that was one of the cornerstones, really, wasn't it, of the Commonwealth of Britain bill, a, a yes. codified constitution. Yes. And like you say, the left, certainly the English left, huh? well, not to my knowledge, anyway, yes. haven't really embraced this or looked at this at all. And perhaps you could unpack that a little bit. I mean, why do we need, in your opinion, a codified constitution rather than this kind of nebulous unwritten constitution? Well, it is about uh, an unwritten one. It's basically so Boris Johnson or the Prime Minister can do what they like and nobody no, can yeah. tell us that they're not doing it. They can do whatever they like. I mean, that's the thing. And in normal circumstances, that might not appear to matter that much. Maybe, as, maybe it's always been like that. But in the present crisis situation, that's open for Boris Johnson and other forces just to simply go, well, they don't treat the Constitution seriously. They just want us to abide by it and be loyal to it and just, uh, you know, uh, uh, like it's some myth that we've got to abide by. If, if we think, well, it, it doesn't really exist. I mean, it does exist, don't get me wrong. But, it, but, it, but as soon as we start to examine it, it can't stand up to any rational test at all. So the best thing to do is not to think about it. If as long as we don't keep thinking about it, then, then it'll, we carry on thinking we can sort things out without doing that. And that's the problem, because if there's a crisis of democracy, we can't avoid the thinking. Because mm -hmm. it's going to force us. To, we're going to be forced. If we didn't want to think about it, we're going to be forced to think about it. You know, the, the conditions in which which are emerging will force people to have this kind of discussion we're having now has to be had, you know, right across the left, in my opinion. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I, I've had, I mean, you know, not, not recently, but, but you know, years, a few years ago, kind of uh, academic conversation about, you know, the pros and cons of a, of a written constitution, a codified constitution versus the unwritten constitution. And, uh, you know, a number of people on the left have said, well, no, I mean, a, a codified written constitution will will fetter the ability of an incoming, uh, at that point, as I know, but I think it's going to have to be something different to that. So it's going to not happen, in my opinion, in the Labour But that will fetter the ability of uh, of uh, an incoming, you know, radical socialist government to, you know, effect the change in, and to, in order to kind of deliver 
at socialism in, in this country. Mm -hmm. but what, how would you respond to to that? That this unwritten constitution gives, you know, a, a radical government if we get one elected more more room to manoeuvre. No, because it's never going to be used. It's never going to be to be used by by the left. It's only ever going to be used by those people who want to block it. They're going to use that power within there to block it. It's, it, it something which is not very democratic is not a, a weapon <coughs> of the left. And if we think we can lay hold on a, a very undemocratic system and somehow wield it for progressive purposes, we're going to come seriously unstuck. But first of all, we'll be accused anyway of being of acting illegally of interfering in the way that you know all those things you can imagine the right taking up all those arguments the the, the real answer is the more democratic because at the end of the day it's not we're doing something on behalf of the people in republicanism we're thinking of the people doing it for themselves the people getting the power in their localities in their trade unions in their labor party to be able to make decisions for themselves and if we want to codify that in a rational way and make it law, then that's where we have to go to that settle that idea. The levelers had the idea of the agreement of the people. They thought we'll have a constitution, and the constitution will be put to the people for agreement, and then we can change it. You know, once it change it, you know, they're stuck with it forever. If 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 circumstances change, you can change the constitution. But it's difficult to change it when you don't know what it is. Well, there's no perfect system, I suppose, because, uh, you know, we've seen in Latin America where the kind of far right have got in power and, uh, you know, they put in, like in Brazil, I think it was, uh, measures to, uh, you know, limit spending, for example, on on education and health and housing, etc. you know. But on the other hand, of course, I mean, from my perspective, coming at it from a, from a kind of progressive socialist radical point of view, I would like to see a constitution that says, you know, poverty will not exist in Britain in the fifth biggest economy in the world, that people have a right to food and to housing and to free education. Those things I, I would have thought could have been incorporated into a constitution. And yes, you know, if, if a white right woman came into to power, I mean, you know, perhaps they could argue for, for something different. But would you see if a constitution were, a codified constitution brought into being, I mean, how would you see amendments being made to that? Would you just leave that to the parliamentarians or would you say that it should be subject to referenda yeah, yeah i think at the end of the day if the people are sovereign the people have to be involved in all of these processes and they have to be involved in it and just to go back to a previous point and the phrase that we use in the republican labor working group is for a democratic and social republic now what we mean by that is a democratic republic i.e with all the all the democratic um uh, institutions and democratic mechanisms that you can have but a social republic doesn't doesn't have to mean the abolition cabinet it means you have social rights written into the constitution which could be the right to housing the right to uh, food or what you know you, we could discuss what should be the social rights that every member of the commonwealth has and ben was in his bill, he has the idea of a national legal service, a bit like a national health service. The idea, therefore, that every citizen would have access to the law. So if you 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 could take up your rights in the, the social rights that you have in the Constitution and have their right, because at the moment, the law is just for people with lots of money. It's not for, you know, we, we, you know it's really the laws for them and not for us. Well, in a, in a democratic and social republic, every citizen should have access to, to the law and have of those laws so yeah democratic i mean dem the commonwealth to me is a democratic and a social republic it's not just yeah. pure democracy um and that would be popular because we are dealing with um we're dealing with you know we're dealing with rights not privileges under the present system you you might have the, might be lucky enough to get some support from the state but you don't have a right to it we're talking about rights. We're talking about democratic rights. It's really, at the end of the day, it's all about the citizens having democratic rights and the citizens having social rights. You know, including I mean, trade union rights, for example. Lots of other yes, things that we, you know, we could talk about. Of I mean, just more of being uh, shown in to see what we actually we've been getting from viewers this evening. Um, obviously, we've been subjected to kind of neoliberal orthodoxy for the last 40 plus years in this country. And we saw when Jeremy, we've touched on this a little bit already, was elected as the Labour leader and was, was challenging that, the, the enemy of, of neoliberalism, and we saw what happened to, to him. Do you, do you think that, you know, unless we 
we have some sort of codified constitution, a republican system in this country that the, you know, the ability to replace kind of that, that neoliberal uh, dominance is possible. There's an interesting, there's an interesting uh, parallel thing going on in Chile right now because the Chilean constitution, which was a product of the the uh, the Pinochet regime, and it shows you what a constitution is really all about. If you if you look from afar on that, they built neoliberalism into the constitution, so they were trying to put it, if you like, in, the constitution is really the basic law. I suppose I like that German word, the basic law. So the, the Chilean constitution was the basic law of Chile, but it, they'd already baked in just like um, Franco did when he when he gave up power in Spain. He tried to bake in the idea it would be a monarchy, you know, because he wanted to carry on carry on with a system that he thought he could bequeath. Now, of course, the, the popular movement in Chile, which started as a social movement, soon came to realize that if they don't have a new republic in Chile, a new constitution, and that's where they've gone down that road, because they realize they need to change the basic ways in which things work. The law is a, the, the constitution is a built-in bias towards the rich, and you can't just ignore that. You've got to do something about it. So you can... You can be a Republican, even in a Republic. You know, Republicanism is not just confined to people uh, who are living in monarchies like Spain or Sweden or us. America needs a new. I mean, you look at America, the way that America works, the way that democracy functions in America. Is, they're in a massive, they're in an even bigger crisis of democracy, I, I believe. And they're, Mussolini, you can see him over there in the shape of Trump. But the system of democracy that they got bequeathed from their revolution gives a bias towards rural areas in their, in, in their Senate and things like that. And so you've got the working class in the big cities, but the constitution doesn't enable them to, to get majorities. So even even though they've won every, every presidential vote since I don't know when, they don't always get even democratic presidents. So they're faced with a problem they need a new constitution because their system is now just polarizing kind of out of control mm. you know and france in france they've got the fifth republic but a lot of people on the left think we have a sixth republic the one yeah. we got no good let's have a sixth well, one then well, let's know. have a first let a bias is yes indeed absolutely uh, right, well, let me bring in um, uh, Sean then, a uh, disembodied uh, Sean. The uh, camera's not working yet this evening. But Sean, can you tell us what kind of response we've been getting from our viewers this evening? Hi, Chris. Hi, Steve. Um, fantastic debate we're having in the chat this evening. Um, just before I go on to comments, I want to welcome a few new people to the channel. We'll see Phil Wazir, um, Jason Likes Lenin, um, and the usual Tiggs Tiggs. Uh, Kevin Rathbone, Jonathan Cooper, um, thank you all for joining us tonight. Um, whilst I've got you here, if you are new to the channel, please um, leave us a like as it helps with our uh, the algorithms for our channel. And uh, please subscribe and click the notification bell so that you know when we go live, which is every Wednesday at 7pm. Okay, so the first question we have tonight, Steve, comes from The Fat Baker. He says that Chris, thanks for having Steve on the show. How do you both think we, sh we can raise the left Republican position up the agenda? What do you think, Steve? Well, I think that uh, we, well, the, the first task in a way that we've got is to, to, first of all, start with the left itself. We have to try to convince the left that they should take this seriously. I mean, the number of people on the left who, who think republicanism is anything other than something from the 17th century and not relevant today um, is, is, is large. So I think there's a, big, there's a big task to do that. And I think that, as I said, because I think republicanism can unite us all, we don't all have to be in the same organization at this moment in time to, cop, to find ways to, to promote and make it a serious proposition for the left to do that. So, I mean, just doing this tonight, and doing other things that we're all doing. So at some point we've got to, we'll have to have some gathering, some some event, if you like, that can bring the left together on this sort of basis. And then we've got to take on uh, the forces in the Labour Party. Then we've got to, we've got to go further than that. Now, whether we'll end up need, having a, an independent Republican Party or whether those Republican forces will, will 
be able to do something in the Labour Party, I cannot know in advance. It doesn't necessarily matter at this stage. We've just got to get the few of us that think this is important have got to get together and find different ways of promoting it, I think, and convincing people that this is the yeah, way. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think, Steve, as you say, we, we've made a start this evening, and I know that you spoke at the uh, ZIST event at Brighton, and joined the Labour Party conference. So we've made a small start, but we need to do a lot more. And uh, before this discussion that we're having this evening, I attended the Trade Union and Socialists Coalition Steering Committee meeting, and one of the items on the agenda was preparing a, a programme for parliamentary elections, whenever they come, a general election. And so one of the things that we could potentially do is maybe, uh, you know, introduce this discussion into uh, into those deliberations and potentially get a commitment there. And certainly we are going through a process that is the resist for the People's Party. We're on the process of registering as well uh, as a party. Um, but we'll be talking to, to members, supporters around the country for views and so on. And we've got to finish up after having those deliberations and discussions with a for the policy conference, and this again, you know, for me, I'm struck out to me, but I, I'm quite like this to be an element of, uh, indeed, a cornerstone of our program. And if we, we can do that, with, as I say, with, with the Trading Associates Coalition, uh, do it with us and you know, the other parties uh, on the left, then you know, we've got a chance maybe of getting this embraced by a wider audience and then having that conversation with the wider general public. Uh, but, uh, I, well, I'm going to say I, I quite agree with that. I mean, what we need, using the word small r, small sp, we need a Republican Socialist Party. That is to say, a party which yeah. obviously aims at socialism, but actually sees Republicanism as its road to, you know, a Republican road to socialism, if you like, is our own. Well, we, have, we haven't picked our name for our party yet. You know, remember, our members have voted to register this party. Right. We haven't decided on the name yet. Well, maybe you, Republican Socialist Party could be, could be it. Well, it's historic. Interestingly enough, there is a historic name because if you go back to, uh, the, like, 1903, there was a debate in what became the Socialist Labour Party at that time, which was one yeah. of the components of the Communist Party. And the word Socialist Labour Party won the debate but the one that was second that was challenged was republican socialist party and i, I don't know if it was tom mann or i can't totally remember off the top of my head who it was but somebody well known in the labor movement had tried to persuade them to use the word republican yeah. socialist well, party so I, I, yeah well I, i'm quite attracted by it but i mean obviously they don't turn it to members just to whether or not they remember but i, I, I certainly quite like that but anyway yeah, sean any, any other comments from our from our viewers oh yeah there's lots um jonathan cooper says He's excited about ghost or shadow CLPs like New and Socialist Labour and the campaign they're doing is the way forward in the immediate future. This is something that I've been thinking about over, well, since Corbyn came in, really, was to set up sort of um, shadow um, um, councillors um, to hold other councillors, um, you know, the, the representative of the elected councillors to account and the councils to account. Do you think that this is something that may work um, as we're working towards a republicanism or towards a republic? What, what, what's your thoughts on that, Steve? And this is a little, little off the top of my head, but yes, I think once you realise that republicanism is not about the fairy at the top of the Christmas tree, but is it actually about the grassroots? It's people organising locally, people organising democratically. It could be through citizens' assemblies. It could be through the, the lack of democracy in the Labour Party. Perhaps shadow, shadow CLPs might be the way in which democracy could, could maintain itself in relation to that. So, um, yeah, I think it's the way to go. It's about if it's people coming together, that, that's, that's where our republic has to come from. It has to come from below it. It's not, it's not something that's going to be coming from above. I mean... In, 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 just, just to give you an example, we became a republic in 1649. The reason why we became a republic is because in the new model army, you already had a sort of republic appearing. You know, so at the end of the day, the struggle between parliament and the new model army led to the republic. The republic pre-existed. The, the, the republic was kind of pre, in, in, the, in the Putney debates, for example, the, the, the republic pre-existed. So in a way, if we're going to have the idea of republicanism, it's got to grow from the grassroots, from people getting yeah. together. That's that's where it's coming from. It's not really coming from anywhere else. It's just that we don't 
limit ourselves to that. We have ambitions which go to the whole political system. But if it doesn't, if the Republic appears before it goes to, comes to power, you know, that's that's the kind of the dual power that exists before, you know, well, it'll be a dual power before there's a Republic, I think. Yeah. And that's what, that's what, that's the way we have to see it. So it's not something that, wait for somebody at the top to do something about the, the monarchy. You can do it in Derby. You can do it in any place you are, wherever you are. You can promote citizens' assemblies, democratic organizations of people. And I even say, Chris, you mentioned food banks. I think that because of the crisis, the formation of food banks is people. It's not that we want that, but it is people yeah. getting together. It's going, what, yeah, we, yeah. what are we calling them again? Citizen activism is the citizens yeah. getting yeah. together to feed, to help feed themselves because the state has so failed them. Yeah. You know, and that's, that's an organization. That is a captain, in my way of thinking, that's a kind of Republican organization. Not called that. Yeah. It didn't mean that people got that, but in effect, it's, it's um, active citizenship. Yeah. It's people, civic republicanism was a phrase that's used for it, civic republicanism. So we should promote civic republicanism. So just, last, last couple of points, Sharon, we've got four right. minutes to go. Yeah, yeah. Just one last question then from Atcha John. Um, he said, um, is there a current model to look at besides the USA? I mean, the USA, as we know, is, is ruled by um, corporatism, um, which we, which can explain what it is we actually want. Where, where ought we be looking for a social organisation uh, working now in this way? Is, is there, a, I think what he's trying to say is, is there a country that is run on a Republican model that we can um, base yeah. ourselves on? No, I think, well, I'd say no, there isn't. But you could, all the things that we probably talked about have all existed. So they're not impossible things. You know, you can, you can look at historical examples. You can look at places like what happened in Russia. You can see what happened in, in, the, in Paris in 1870. So there are lots of places where Republicanism has bubbled up where people have organized themselves in these ways, but they, they've never, uh, they, they've, they've not lasted for very long because the forces they're against are very powerful. So I think we're not, we're not advocating something that hasn't existed somewhere, you know, annual parliaments, all these other things, they've all existed somewhere. So it's not utopian, we're inventing it. If you want to look somewhere, I still recommend you go back and look at Tony Benzville just to see what he's saying, not to necessarily agree with it, but as a good reference point, I still think yeah, he's, 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 the, he's the point. We've got to get beyond Tony Benn, but we need to get everybody up to that level in the first place yeah. so yeah. we can go beyond it, you know, rather than actually, actually where we've been below that level. John, uh, final comments from anybody? Um, there's just, it's just a, a brilliant debate that's going on on chat, really. People are talking amongst themselves. I think... We're having such a good debate on chat they're going to have to go back and re-watch this um right. afterwards um and and then taking you know what's been going on on the chat lots of people saying you know um we need to work together resist breakthrough knit the socialist tusk I, I you know i will say to people that that we are working with all of those different organizations um we're on the, the steering committee of tusk and we're also involved in um it's a progressive left alliance is it Chris? progressive alliance of the left yeah so and, and which is a, a coalition really of all of those groups um including peace and justice which is um jeremy corbyn's uh campaigning group um, so we, we are involved, we are getting together, we are talking um, and we are trying to get together um, um, a list of um, policies or um, headings that we or, or values that we all agree to um, so that we can go forward with this. So I hope that does answer some people's questions to great. that. Um, but well, I want to well, thank everybody for joining in the chat tonight. It's been really great. And uh, I hope we can carry on this. Absolutely. Um, maybe on the Facebook group or on Twitter. Yeah, absolutely. Well, listen, we're, we're out of time. I want to thank uh, Steve for, for being an excellent guest this evening. And one of the things that we're planning to do in this new year, as we are in now, is to organise a range of, uh, of webinar discussions for members and supporters of the uh, resist movement and maybe Steve could uh, come along and uh, participate in. I just think this is a topic we should return to because 
one of the things that we talk about is raising political consciousness, and, and this is a, such an important issue where we need to raise political consciousness, anyway. and it covers so, such a, a you know, vast array of, of, of areas, really, of, of life in this country that uh, I think getting a you know, better understanding uh, and raising people's uh, you know, consciousness and awareness about you know, what republicanism is about, I think it is really, really crucial. So thanks again, Steve, for your input this evening. Hopefully you'll come back on again and maybe join us in some of these uh, webinar discussions. Thank you, everybody, for watching this evening. Tune in next week, same time, same place, at 7 o'clock. Thanks for watching and good night.